Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, listeners, Tim Sylvie here. Now today. We are joined by our third member of the same family on this show. But before I introduce him, I have to head across the airwaves to bring in my good friend, commentator supreme, the man that is always taller than you think in real life, the lovely Harry Benjamin. How are you? I'm very well, Timothy. Thank you very much for having me back here. I quite like guest hosting this podcast now, dipping and diving in. It, it makes yeah. each one a bit more fresher and, and, well, yeah, refreshing. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Um, and, and you've got some competition now, obviously, with Tomo, um, Tom McCluskey, who, oh, yeah. who also guest hosts. But clearly, yeah, but you're, my, you're my favourite, of course. I'm better and the OG, so yeah. Tomo can just sit, sit back in that seat. Yeah. Um, and I have to update you because I know you're a fan of dogs. I've purchased a dog. So this is day two with with said dog, and it's currently in its cage somewhere behind me. I feel a bit guilty because I've left it in its cage and Aww. it was howling. No, it's cage training is good. It's supposed to cage train the dog, especially when yeah. it's puppy. I know. And I'm surprised but... it's not making any noises. That's good. Well, no, it is, oh. but it's in the house and I'm in the man shed. So... Oh right. Yeah, I feel a bit guilty. I'm, it's tugging on the heartstrings, but there we are. What can you do? Podcast takes priority in this for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, <laughs> anyway, should I introduce today's guest? I think so. Let's get on with it. So after already having Olympian and e-scooter rider Nikki Daly and IndyCar star Connor Daly on the show, it's now time to get the big dog in. The man that started it all, a man that's raced in Formula One alongside names like James Hunt, Andretti, Lauda, Rosberg, and later drove an IndyCar where he was fortunate to come away with his life after a horrific accident in Michigan. He now resides in the US of A and has forged a successful career in writing, public speaking, and broadcast since his racing days we can't wait to hear about his life career thoughts and opinions Derek Daly for the third time a daily on the show a massive welcome to the Motormouth podcast how are you uh I'm good me and the dogs are good your dogs not my dogs <laughs> you, you you have dogs as well uh we actually have one dog yeah yeah he's what? almost deaf, almost blind 
Oh. What type of dog is he, Derek? Uh, small and white. Small and white. Nice. We like a small <laughs> and white dog. Well, Derek, off air, you asked us where we are. So that's what I'm going to ask you. Where are you joining us uh, from today? Where are you based these days? Uh, I, today I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I, I, I winter in Phoenix uh, and summer in Indianapolis. I went to Indianapolis in 1983 just for curiosity. I, I never left. But I've added... <laughs> Arizona in the winter because Indiana winters can be a bit cold, windy, harsh and cold. Oh, I can imagine. Well, it sounds like you've got the best of both scenarios there, wintering and summering. Um, But we want to go back to the very start, if you don't mind, casting your your mind back. uh, What, March 1953, you were born. So actually, has it been? Your birthday must be coming up soon, right? Uh, March 11th. Yeah. No, yeah, is it the eleventh? Ten days, yeah. What we're we're twins. I'm the eleventh as well. <laughs> what are the no. wow. What are the chances? <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing a pub crawl in Greenwich, Derek. You're welcome to come along. We can do a we can do a joint birthday party. <laughs> no, no, you you, <laughs> you do it and tell me how it is. <laughs> All right, okay, fine. Do yeah. that's the politest decline I've ever had. Well, look, you were born then on the 11th of March, 1953, um, Dublin. So, what was life like for for a young Derek Daly? When when did motorsport sort of start rearing its head for you? Well, I remember the first couple of seconds when I popped into the world and I couldn't quite see, and then I remember yeah. There I was. You remember you remember the same thing, right? Yeah, just 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 a few years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um the the, the amazing thing about starting in Ireland, back then we didn't even have a, a racing circuit. I mean Mondello Park never came till nineteen sixty eight. Um um I was fifteen at that stage. Um uh but my dad had a grocery store, a grocery shop in uh, 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 on the outskirts of Dublin City, and I was walking home from school one day, and there was a an English registered truck sitting in uh, in our uh, neighbourhood with Sydney Taylor Racing written on it, and I thought, wow, that, that's probably got a racing car in there. I go back to my dad, I tell him, oh, there's a truck. From England, wow, big stuff! Uh, and my dad said, "You know what? The lady who just brought her groceries—it's her brother that has it. He's Sydney Taylor, and you can see the car at seven o'clock tonight." We went back at seven o'clock. He opened the door, and there was a Brabham BT8, white, green stripe down the middle, shamrock on it, and that was the first racing car I'd ever seen or ever touched. And then my dad says. I'll take you to see it race tomorrow. It's a small street race in Dunboyne, a village on the outskirts of uh, uh, further out than Dublin. Uh, a typical Irish village in those days were, you know, a, a grocery store, a Catholic church and seven or eight pubs. And so the circus sort of wound its way around those buildings. My dad took me out. We sat on the grass bank and it absolutely changed my life. I remember the sounds and the sights and the smells and the speed and everything about it captivated me and I thought to myself that that that's what I'm going to do right there it I, I naively never worked through it well, well we don't have a racing circus so there are no racing cars in Ireland but you know that 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 took a back seat but that was that was the day that changed my life with, without a doubt so how how did you get racing then so you know without the Irish racetracks when did you set foot in a car or a cart maybe so 
When I was 16, I see this poster for stock car racing in Santry Stadium. This was jalopy, demolition derby, whatever you call it. But but it was fairly basic, not stock cars at the level now that they would run um, uh, uh, these days in England. Um, but fairly basic ba- banger racing. That's what they call it, I think, now. Yeah. Um, I went out to see it and thought, I'm doing it. Now, so I was 16. Remember, you couldn't get a driver's license in Ireland till you were 18. So, so I ended up buying a, a, a junker off the side of the road. My dad towed it on, 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 on the end of a rope, put it in the garage at the back of our house, and that's what I was going to work on. That, that, was, that was my first racing car. Uh, and, and I mean, it was basic, it was, but, but at least I started, it was two years before I could get a driver's license to be able to tow the car myself. You've, um, you've just taken me back to my childhood to something that I had completely forgotten about the banger racing. I used to go and I used to go and watch banger racing. I've, I haven't thought about that for years. Bloody hell! That, I'm going to have to Google banger racing because that's just brought back a flood of uh, yeah. of noises and sounds and smells. It's an, it was an amazing thing. I don't know whether that still goes on. I guess it does, but um, yeah, amazing. So let, let's let's fast forward then a little bit. So British Formula Three, you won the championship in 1977. British Formula Three now is hugely competitive. Was it? Like that then, was it a very competitive field? Were there names in it that went on to great things? You must have some fairly fond memories of that time. Oh, yeah. The era uh, that um, um, in 77, Derek Warwick obviously made it to F1. Uh, Stephen South, who who I believe made it to F1, although it was all cut short. Uh, Elio De Angelis, Riccardo Patrese, uh, E. Pironi uh, won the F3 race in Monaco in 77. So yeah, it, it it was it was very much a golden era. It 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 really was. If if I'm completely honest, I never thought I I, I never thought it was possible. Formula One just seemed to be a different level, a different stage, a different plateau. That you know, superstars somehow got there. To my logic was. I don't know how far I'll get, but I'm going to give myself an opportunity to go as far as I can and do everything possible at all the steps when they're presented to try and make it happen. But quite honestly, it happened unbelievably fast. So so, so let me throw a bit of background here. So when I'm 12 and I see Sydney Taylor racing, right, in my neighborhood, I then go through Formula Ford and Formula 3. In F3, on the starting grid in 1977, on the pre-grid, I'm on the pole beside Nelson Piquet, right? I'm, I'm sitting there. This old guy with a limp and a bit of a shuffle shuffles up to Derek McMahon, Big D, my mentor, my sponsor, and he says something to him. And Big D comes to me in the cockpit. He says, hey, that boy there says if you win this race, he'll put you in a Formula One car. I said, who was it? He said, some fella called Sid Taylor. Now think about that. When I was 12 years of age, the first guy I saw, he happened to be running Teddy Yip's Formula One program. And so all those years later, he's the same guy that comes up and says, if you win the race, I'll put you in a Formula One car. What I didn't know at the time was Ron Taranak had designed and built the Theodore Formula One car 
it was being finished, I went out myself and PK had a barnstormer of a race. I won it. And within two months, uh, 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 at the end of the year, I was in a Formula One car. So think about this. I went from the Formula Ford Festival, winning it, getting the trophy from James Hunt in October 77, in, in September 77, to being in a Formula One car 13 months later. And I went, to, I went through F3. At the end of F3, I got an, a chance to do an F2 race at Estoril. Uh, and then into a Formula One in 13 months. At that stage, Fittipaldi held the record at 18 months from Formula Ford to Formula One. I mean, it was an unbelievable time. Yeah, it happened so fast. It happened too fast, quite honestly. I, I, I'm going to come on to your, your first sort of visceral, emotional experience in a Formula One car in a minute. But you mentioned James Hunt there. We we interviewed his son Freddie, who's who looks just like him. is is kind of freaky talking to Freddie um, about him and his dad. But what what in your eyes, what what was James Hunt like as a character? I mean, we've seen that public persona of James Hunt that we see in the documentaries and stuff. But from someone that was there, what what was he really like? Uh, just like you saw in the documentary. So I met him for the first time. The the Formula Ford Festival in 1976 was called Tribute to James. He had just become world champion. Marlborough sponsored the festival. James came to present the trophy. First time I ever met him. Um, One, so that was 76, right? Less, a year and a half later, I qualified beside him on the grid at Brands Hatch in the Formula One race. 18 months later, I'm looking over thinking, hey, do you remember me? Yeah, I do. And so we had a bit of a bond um, all through, because he was on in the race for a short time while, while I was in F1. And then we both went into television broadcasting together. Um, so uh, I, I could mix and mingle with him then. Now, I didn't socialize with him that much. I was, I was at many events where, you know, he turned up in shorts and no shoes and socks and, and, and you know the the typical James Hunt. You probably couldn't do it today, but he was he was an amazing character. He was the color that you that you imagined Formula One would be and needed, and he was it. His brother Peter was my accountant. <laughs> Complete flip. <laughs> Such a different, amazing. I mean, what what a meteoric rise as well for you to sort of be going through that at the same time. So what was the, the Theodore F1 car, the first sort of F1 car you got to experience behind the wheel? Very first one. We went to Goodwood. Goodwood was still used by F1 teams in those days. Um, I remember getting into the car. and There's a long straight at Goodwood. I mean, it, it, it was, certainly seemed long the first time I got into it. And there were only five-speed gearboxes back then. And this car accelerated so fast. I mean, throws your head back. The engine screams. You go second, third, fourth. When I got to 11,000 revs in fourth gear, I could hardly see fast enough. And I still had another gear to go. <laughs> and so as usual, your brain adjusts. And now you want, you're using all the gears. You want more power. And the, the test went amazingly well to the point where they said, would you, would you consider racing this for us? I, I mean, I was obviously interested in it, but I could not get a super license. I hadn't done enough oh. races to 
granted a super license. So a big super license argument started. Um, uh, and um, um, I, I wasn't granted one in time. But you did you did race in a non-championship Formula One race in 1978 at Silverstone. It was raining, but you were leading against the likes of aforementioned James Hunt. Uh, okay, you didn't end up finishing the race, but you were doing extremely well in that race. Were you thinking, well, this is a breeze, bloody hell, I, I can do this. This is easy. So, and it's James Hunt again. So James Hunt leads into cops. I always got good starts in general. I, 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 I could always get good starts. And the same thing happened in the wet. I get a blinder of a start. I'm, 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 I weave in and out through people. I pass Patrick Depaye and I see James Hunt, the last car ahead of me, going into cops. So I backed off, drove around. As we go up to uh, uh, Be- Beckett's, is it Beckett's? Yeah, it is Beckett's, yeah. As we go to Beckett's, Hunt braked amazingly early and I literally drove down the outside of him. And so Murray Walker's pants are on fire as I came out of Beckett's in the lead. First Formula One race. And of course, you know, when I look at the video today, it's 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 an amazing thing to happen. And you see a slide around and my downfall. And so halfway through the first lap at uh, the farm. Remember the corner called the farm at Silverstone? The river ran across. I'm the first one and I spin off. Hunt's next, he spins off. Andretti's next, he spins off. Louda's next, he spins off. And so I, I was able to keep going. I got back into the lead again. And then the old Bell helmets in those days had a nylon, uh, a nylon clip where the visor clipped over. And so I, uh, the, the, the visor fogged up. We had no technology in those days to know what airflow and what you put on the inside of it. And I couldn't open it to get airflow. So one last haul of of strength to open the visor and the little nylon clip broke on the top. So now the visor drops down, hanging on by one side. It's absolutely raining cats and dogs. I'm sort of blinking as best I could. So I would drive down the straight with my left hand holding the visor up. I would drop the visor, blink as fast as I could, change gear with my right hand, get through the corner, accelerate, get into top gear, use my left hand to hold the visor up again, see where I was going. And so that went on for three or four laps until I eventually went off into the catch fence. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, my it, God. It was really amazing to think about it. It's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. It, yeah. it 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 is. It it actually gives me goosebumps to a degree because it's such a a sort of you know you, we all look back at that era with slightly rose tinted glasses, but it's such a golden era. And you know, hearing people talk about those ty- types of names, it it gets you when you're a fan of motorsport. It, it hits you in the feels, doesn't it? Um. So you're so you're driving in Formula One. Things are looking good. How are you funding this, or is, are these people just saying you know we'll, we'll pay you to come and drive, or, or you know how are you? How are you doing it? Yeah, at this stage, I'd managed to skip uh, having to bring sponsorship. Um, Hesketh obviously ran their stuff. Hesketh was the very first paycheck I got from driving a racing car. They actually paid me, um, uh, which was amazing. There was something like 1,100 pounds or something. Um, And then um, 
before the, the F1 stuff happened, uh, Guy Edwards had an ICI-sponsored Formula 2 team. And so my deal to go from Formula 3 to Formula 2 as a logical next step was already done before the F1 stuff happened. So once I couldn't get the super license, I, I had a fallback to Formula 2, uh, and I got paid to do that also. And so I'm in a Chevron against three March BMWs, Giacomelli, Mark Schurer, and um, Manfred Winkelhock. Oh, wow. So all guys, all guys that made it to Formula One. Um, and so my fallback was F2. We go to Mugello, which is the fifth race of the season. I qualify on the pole, have a barnstorm of a race against uh, Sewer, win that one, go to Vallelunga the next weekend, win there also. And so now I'm high profile in Formula Two. And I got a call from Mo Nunn. Mo Nunn, who ran Team Ensign, who had Jackie X in the car at the time. And Jackie X, um, they had a suspension failure. Uh, the One of the uprights broke, wheel came off, Jackie X didn't like what was going on. And so Mo asked, would I replace Jackie X? And so <laughs> here's the weird part of the story. Mo Nunn was racing at Dunboyne with Sid Taylor when I was 12 no. years of age all those years ago. Yeah, isn't that weird? Well, it's amazing how these things come back around after all those years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so my debut was to be at Brands Hatch in the Ensign. And lo and behold, I qualified beside James Hunt. <laughs> and the car was amazing. The car was easy to drive. I was fast. I was running in the top 10. Uh, everything going well when the same rear suspension failed on me. The left rear wheel came off and it, at the top of paddock uh, uh, bend and it just spun down into the catch fence. But it was it, it was a great weekend. I was fast. And so then I began, I, I, uh, I raced that for the rest of the year. Got a, uh, Canada was, I, I think I did six or seven races in it. And Montreal was, was my first world championship point. That was when only the top six got points. And I didn't realize it at the time how uh, FOCA, Formula One Constructors, I think it was called at the time, how the points winners became eligible for the travel benefits the following year. And so if I didn't score a point in Canada, Mo Nunn was out of business. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so the last 10 or 15 laps was a, uh, I'm, I'm in a dogfight between myself and Didier Pironi, who was in the Tyrol. Uh, and I finished sixth. So that was my contract extended for the following year. And Mo Nunn continued in business. Wow. Yeah, amazing. It goes to show how far a, a single point can go in, in Formula One. And also, clearly the whole story, <laughs> highlights don't piss anyone off on your way up because you never know when they might come back around again <laughs> doesn't it yeah you um you you mentioned quite a lot of of circuits there obviously um f1 looks very different nowadays well still racing some of the same circuits but obviously we've got a massive calendar now too did you have a particular favorite circuit when you were racing i too brands hatch grand prix circuit and osterreich ring the original osterreich ring oh the original yeah just so fast downhill sweepers, uphill, blind apexes. I, I just thought it was an amazing place. I, I wish they could bring it back. I know for, for television reasons, they chopped all these uh, mm. circuits in half because now 
you know, you, to do the same mileage, you have to go past, you know, almost, you know, a third more laps. I understand why they did it, but the old Osterike ring was was just amazing. I think they should have kept the name because I think that, the Osterike ring just sounds good, I think. It yeah. sounds mean. It sounds like a yeah. racing track proper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, night, the, the night I won the F3 race there, uh, we were happened to be sponsored by Jim Beam Whiskey. And so Big D, Derek McMahon, turns the rear wing of the racing car into a, a bar in the middle of the paddock. <laughs> every, Brilliant. Every exhaust. And we're, in those days, there weren't an, enough hotels around the Osterreich ring. So we stayed in, in villages in people's homes um, who had racing people come every year. It was, you know, it was part, it was part of Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What they did in the villages, and we're walking home, and Big D is full drunk, singing at the top of his lungs, walking down through this village, and this old lady opens a window and starts shouting at him to stop making noise in the middle of the night. And he, of course, he puts his arms out, begins to serenade her, so she threw a bucket of water over him. <laughs> and he walked about three or four steps and, and licked his lips, and you think, I think she threw a piss pot over oh. me. <laughs> The old, remember the old days in the old bedpans under the... Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh no. And, and you can't get stories like that anymore. You no. definitely can't. You definitely... I can't, I can't picture Lando Norris uh, doing that in the, in the paddock this, these days, unless he does it on a live Twitch stream, maybe. Yeah. Um, but, it, but like Harry says, for, Formula One has changed. It's changed a great deal, not only in terms of the tracks and the way it's broadcast and the sponsorships, but... The, the safety aspects. And I know that you've had your fair share of incidents over the years. Um, and in those times, unfortunately, there were fatalities. We had the likes of the late, great Ronnie Peterson and others. Um, and you've had your own share of incidents. And we mentioned in the intro, um, not only did you have a, a rather spectacular crash in Monaco 1980, but it was in the States when you were racing out there in Michigan 1984 that you really came close to losing it all, hitting the wall at over 200 miles per hour. And I've, I only actually watched the YouTube video for the first time this morning. Um, and it's it's quite terrifying to watch the, the state of the car after the incident when the cameras pick it up. Could you just, if you're happy to, just talk us through what happened there and 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 how lucky you were to to get out of that car when you were taken out by the guys that that turned up on the scene and actually yeah. come away with it eventually okay yeah 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 and so we all have accidents in racing i only ever got hurt one time which was michigan um 
my lap time before that, because it's funny how, how, how your memory captures images, even though you're going 215 or 220 miles an hour, your memory is able to capture an image that that's lasts forever. So I just did a lap of 219 miles an hour average. Mich- Michigan was a high bank two mile oval. And, 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 when I was going into turn three, there was a big bump. So you go over the bump, you straighten the wheel just a tiny bit, and then you go on. So it becomes a rhythm. Bump, straighten, uh, uh, accelerate. Bump, straighten, accelerate. And so it was a rhythm. And everybody had it. You could see everybody's suspension as they went over it. And as I'm coming down the back straight, it just began to, not rain, but just that mist began to fall. And it was just enough to take the grip away. And so when I bounced and corrected, the car spun. I remember it spinning. It was so violent when it spun that I remember my head getting thrown out of the side of the car. And then I remember pulling my legs back as far as I could into the cockpit, just in case I hit something hard. So I clearly remember, oh, shit, pulled my legs back as far as I could. uh, And then I have no memory. Everything goes until about two seconds before the car stopped rolling off the banking. I I was suddenly awake again because I remember seeing my legs bounce along the ground. And it never dawned on me that the whole front from the seat forward was gone. Never dawned on me. So it comes down. I look out and I can see that my left leg, I I was at a funny angle, as was my ankle. But as all racing drivers do, you go hands, fingers, toes, uh, ankles, legs. I'm thinking, oh, it's all there. But I got to my left arm and I I could no longer feel my left arm. And I got a cold, chill sweat all the way through because I thought I'd lost my left arm. My team manager at the time was Merle Bettenhausen, who had the same accident in Michigan 15 years earlier and got his left arm chopped off. So I grabbed my helmet, pulled my helmet down as far as I could, and I could see my left arm was still attached. And that was, okay, I'm good. What I didn't know at the time is the water pipe burst from the radiator, burnt the nerve center on my left arm, which is what paralyzed it, which is what gave me the feeling that my arm was no longer there. And so they, they, uh, the, the safety guys arrive and um, the head of trauma walks up to me. Before he gets to me, he stops and he kneels down and just looks in my eyes. And I said to him years after, I said, Steve, why did you not come up to me? He said, because the accident was so severe, my job was to look into your eyes because we felt if you went into severe shock, we could lose you. And so my job was to look in your eyes to make sure that they didn't fall back and, and, and that you didn't die of, of, uh, of shock. And so then that, that was it. My life changed from then on. I mean, I didn't understand when I was in the car. Um, they started to medicate me. I was in the infield hospital. I could hear the doctor on the phone to the hospital as they get in the helicopter ready. And he's talking about multiple lower extremity injuries and exposed bone and all sorts of stuff. And I'm thinking... I'm now medicated to the point where I'm not sure he's actually describing me. Yeah. You know, it's all in a, in a bit of a fog. Uh, and then I remember the helicopter. I remember getting uh, to, to the university hospital in Michigan. And then suddenly I go out. They obviously medicated me, did the surgery. I wake up in this 
quite light clinical room. I'm on a stretcher. I look over and I see this series of x-rays and I see nuts and bolts and screws and rods. And in my complete naive state, I thought, man, that poor bastard. I wonder what happened to him. Never connected. Because when you're medicated, you don't you don't think clearly. Never connected that all that hardware was in my ankles, my legs. Um, um, and then their whole recovery started. I mean, it was I was three years in therapy. Um, I, I had 14 surgeries, um, uh, bone grafting, skin grafting, broken hip joint, broken pelvis, broken ribs, broken hand, broken arm, third degree burns. For good measure, all the blood transfusions were laced with hepatitis C. Oh, God. I don't know if you remember back in those days, there were no, hep C was known as the silent killer because you didn't know you had it till it ate your liver. And then, um, um, and and, uh, I had to get AIDS tested for seven years because there was no AIDS screening back then. It was just all to come online. So it was was a bit of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And and so... And today, how, you know, how much have you got metal all over or how is it today? You know, (laughs) I have I have a little bit, but I'm actually I'm actually good. I can do most things. I mean, I don't I I don't jog or run or play tennis or anything with with high impact Mm. like that. But I mean, I can pretty much do most things. Most people do not know that I have fused ankles. Uh, I don't. I don't walk with a shuffle or a limp or anything like that. So it, it, it was remarkably good. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, considering. But 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 here's how close that was, Tim. You mentioned you know uh, I could have lost my life. Again, circumstances fall into line that's, that 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 saves your life. John Paul Jr who was an IndyCar driver at the time, um, saw the accident happen ahead of him. And he thought, he made a decision. He says, the only way I can miss him is I have to go right to the top of the, 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 the high line, right by the wall. He said, then I probably won't hit him. Well, he made a decision, went high. He's probably still doing 180 miles an hour. My car broke the front off, was spinning back into the wall with no front on the car. So the, the, the circuit director said I was at least 0.8 of a second from certain fatal injuries until right before I hit the wall with no front on the car, John Paul Jr. smashed right into the side of the car, lifted it off the ground and spun it down to the inside. Wow. Remarkable circumstances. Yeah. It's it, it's insane. I mean, and, and he, I think he he's the one who stopped on track, right? And he he walked yeah. out of his car, and he had a bit of a limp. Yeah. but he was okay. He he looked yeah. shook up. He looked visibly yeah. shook up in yeah. the footage. Um, yeah. Ah, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say. Incredible. I mean, it's 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 an it's a mad story, and the injuries are insane. You are so so lucky. How do you cope with that mentally? You mentioned you had three years of therapy. Was that physical therapy or was that oh, mental physical, therapy? Physical. I never had a mental issue. And, 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 and when I'm in the hospital, uh, you know, people would ask me, um, are, are you going to go back racing? Or, or an even more pointed question is, why <laughs> would you ever consider to go back racing again? And here's this whole weird cycle 
um, you know, where, 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 where I believe people need to complete the wheel to keep things rolling. When I told my dad when I was 12 years of age, going to watch Sid Taylor race, race. When I told my dad that I think I want to be a professional racing driver, my dad told me two things. He said, I'll help you in every possible way, as long as there's not financial help you need. I completely understood that. And then he said, always remember, you'll be completely responsible for the legacy that you leave in the sport. Meant nothing to me when I was 12. But it did when I had my accident. Because I suddenly thought, well, I can't have this accident be the legacy that I leave. So I had to recover. I had to go to therapy. I had to get uh, fit and strong uh, to be able to drive a racing car again. I had to get back in. And then I had control of when I leave under my terms. Yeah. And believe it or not, you know, another weird set of circumstances. I'm on a walking stick, right? At Silverstone one day, I'm in heavily padded boots to protect my ankles because they were so sore. And I was doubtful. Maybe I'll never be able to drive a racing car again because I can't bend my ankles to do heel-toe gear changes. Back in those days, we didn't have automatic gearboxes. I'm at Silverstone and John Fitzpatrick is there with his team. David Hobbs is testing. And I, I knew John. And I said to John, at the end of the test, John, if you're finished early, is there any way I could have a couple of laps in the Porsche 956 just to see, can I drive and use the pedals? And, and he did. I got in, got strapped in, drove out. And within two or three corners, I thought, I can do this again. Wow. I'll be good. I'm okay. Yeah. I had to get special carbon fiber insoles made into the soles of my racing boots because the pedal pressure was too much on the balls of the soles of my feet because they never recovered. They're still super sensitive. But as soon as I got the carbon insoles put in, now I could use the brakes. I could press hard. I was good. And uh, two, I got hurt in 84, 87. I got back to full-time racing again. Now, I know you said, obviously, one of the, you want, the big thing about you was wanting to leave a legacy and you had to recover. But I'm just, this is slightly fast forwarding a little bit. Obviously, your son, Connor, at some stage comes to you and goes, I want to be a racing driver. Does any of that play into your mind when you go, oh, cr-? do you go, oh, crap? Or do you go, same as your dad, I'll help you in any way? You know what? I, I told him, I said, I'll help you in any way I can. But But I also added a caveat. I said, I'm not going to pull you through the sport. I don't need to live vicariously. I said, I'll help you as long as you keep pulling me through the sport. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Even now, you know, people say, well, you know, are you scared when you see him race? I'm not at all. However, I do get the heart flutter if I see a significant accident and he's involved in it. Yeah. I think that's just normal. Yeah. That's a normal parental feel. Yeah, he's uh, he's done incredibly well. He must be a very proud father. And he, he spoke very well when he was on our show, actually. He was one of our favorite guests and it did, it was a show that did really well. He was he was very open and honest and um, and and great fun. You know, not the usual sort of censored yeah. Formula One-esque drivers that you tend to get. So it's great to talk to him. Um, <laughs> and, your, and, and your family is bonkers. I mean, you've got Olympians in the form of Nicky. You've got jet ski riders who are world champions you've got yeah. yourself you've got connor what the hell have you put in the daily genes what what is going on and, and and it's amazing because none of this was pre-planned this all happened by accident i never pre-planned any of my moves i never pre-planned going into television broadcasting yeah. 
I, 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 w- I was in a wheelchair in Las Vegas when I did an interview with ESPN. A week later, they called me and it turned into a 10-year contract. When they called me a week later, they said, Derek, would you like to do color? I said, sure. I had absolutely no idea what color was. <laughs> I'd, never heard the term. I'd never heard the term color commentator. Yeah. didn't know what it was. But now they're going to pay me to travel the world to do television commentary while I'm in recuperation. <laughs> Quid's what in. a gig! Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, surely yeah. there's got to be there's got to be an accountant somewhere in the Daily Family. Surely, <laughs> you know what? We have one. Nicky's brother is an accountant. Hey, we got one. It's always a brother. <laughs> Lives in the Cayman Islands. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very yeah. nice. A good accountant, then I bet. What? But let me let me add a caveat. He was so good enough at golf. That he actually played to try and get his European tour card. Oh wow! Okay, missed missed it by one shot. Oh. I, I said, Barry, that's amazing. You missed it by one shot. He said, a thousand people missed it by one. Oh god! That's how competitive golf was. Yeah, yeah. 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 golf. Well, I've just watched that golf Netflix thing as well. It's very, it's a very interesting sport, uh, especially when you compare it to Formula One or something. Um, what is? You mentioned that you, you've raced in different championships, different cars as well. What's the best one you've ever driven? The best race car? The best racing car I ever drove was, and this might surprise people, let let me give you two. The Chevron B42 Formula 2 car and the Tyrrell 010, the Candy Tyrrell 1980. Ah. It It wasn't a winning car necessarily, but, but as a balanced, high grip, really enjoyable car to drive the Tyrrell um 010 yeah it's a it's a lovely looking machine i'm just googling it now I, the, the way the cars looked back then was so cool i mean they're proper proper machines um before we come on to our final three which we ask all of our guests what looking back now you you've had a mad career you, you've you've done indycar you've done formula one a, a lot of formula one as well nearly 70 championship races um you've had a successful post-racing career would you have done anything different? What, what, what would you say to your 21-year-old self if you could talk to him today? I would say try and find a coach or a manager to help you through, um, to help you through the rapid-fire career that suddenly dropped in your lap. I believe I got to Formula One too fast because when I got there, I didn't really understand cars technically. I didn't really understand how to engineer a car. I'd never worked with an engineer ever. And so I think I drove on 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 instinct and reflex. And when you drive on instinct and reflex and you don't have enough brain power to think about what you're doing, I think you eventually get spat out. And that's what happened to me. And so I, I understand it clearly uh, how it all happens. So, so if 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 I if I if I could change something, I would try and get some knowledge support at the time when when my hair was on fire and and I was being offered all of these great opportunities that you just jump in and boom, if you wanted to go faster, drive it harder. Well, I didn't always work like that. Um, so, so yeah, so that would be, that would, that would be the only thing I would change. Yeah. Now, um, 
we've kept you for long enough, Derek. We'll come on to our final three, which, like I say, we ask these to everybody, and they throw up all sorts of answers. It's it's uh, it's quite. We should pull pull them all together one day, Harry, because we've got the, the same three questions for over 150 people, and we've never had the, the same answers really. Um, Harry, do you want to kick off first with the uh, this week? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Derek, what has got you excited at this very moment? <laughs> You mean you mean as we as we discussed? Yeah. Well, you could in it could be literally doing the podcast, or it could be more in the grander scheme of what's got you excited in motorsport at the moment. What's what are you excited about in general? I think what excites me in general is a that I am healthy because at, at, at my age, and I'm seventy years old in ten days. It's an it's amazing the amount of people when I look at old photographs in in racing never made it home, and so I never appreciated health back then when you're in the middle of the fight, but but so many people who are super successful never made it home. I tell myself every day, look out and smell the roses and enjoy every day. And, and because everything else will continue to happen, you can't affect that, but you can affect, I believe, your outlook on life in general. And so I, I, I try to think that I'm a, I'm a serial survivor. A lot of things happen to me that you have to overcome. But, d- 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 you know, I tell people you're never beaten when you, when you fall down. You're only be- beaten when you stay down. And so I consider myself a serial survivor, no matter what happened in racing, no matter what happened in F1, in IndyCar, in television, in, 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 in issues that you had throughout your career, your, your personal life, you got to, you've got to keep looking forward. It's a bit like racing, you can only glance in that rear view mirror, otherwise you crash. Second one for you, how much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time? And what do you put down to just sheer hard work? I believe the sheer hard work allows you to take full advantage of the opportunities that fall your way. And I believe most people who have talent get the opportunity, but whether they have the desire and commitment to give everything possible to making it successful is is what makes the difference between whether you use it to get to the next stepping stone or not. Very well put. Very well put. Final question though for you, Derek. What are you scared of? <laughs> horror movies. No. <laughs> hate horror movies. Hate being in a car with somebody driving fast. <laughs> Bad passenger. And hate the thoughts of ever being hurt badly again. Very good. Very good. Well, look, Derek, it's been an absolute privilege talking to you. It's fascinating to hear your many stories um, of years gone by. Um, like we often say with with people who have raced in that generation, we could do this for hours and hours and hours. But um, but we need to let you get on with your day. Um, I really get hope we get the opportunity to meet you in the future. We're, we're going to keep in touch with Nikki. Um, hopefully, Harry and I will both get out to the States at some point um, on our various exploits around the uh, formula one world but for now derek thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and we'll speak to you soon pleasure thanks tim thanks harry we'll do it again sometime 
Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast